Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Welcome back to the pod. Recently, I logged into our forum, our online community, the DC, which represents a lot of listeners of this show. I just want to say the DC is at an all-time high right now in terms of membership, engagement, the number of events we have this summer and fall, the number of registered members that have raised their hand and said we're flying to Bangkok in October to go to DCBKK. It's been awesome. There's just a ton of energy in there. And hopefully more of those stories will make it onto the show. And I try to share those stories of real entrepreneurs out there doing it, meeting in person on the show as often as possible. And the post that inspired today's show just jumped right out of me. Here's the title, Lessons on Building and Retiring from My 100K Plus a Month Productized Service Business in Four Years. It was written by Justin Tan, founder of a video editing productized service called Video Husky. And it was such an incredible goldmine of high quality insights, like the sort of mistakes I've made so you don't have to make them and just incredible writing that I had to get him on the pod, share his insights with you today. So a little bit of background, Justin grew up in Hong Kong as part of a business owning family. And in keeping with many of the best entrepreneurial stories on this show, he had his own Shopify store selling sports clothing when he was in his late teens. Post-college, parlaying the marketing skills he learned doing that he set up a Facebook ads marketing agency for local businesses in Hong Kong. So far, tracking nicely with TMBA progressions, which is where we're going to start his story, which I was thrilled, as you can imagine, just seems to contain so many themes of this show, including knowledge gap, efficiency gap, productized service strategies, and a bunch of other stuff. So let's jump right into it. I love this one. I hope you will too. At the time, I think I was charging them anywhere between one to two grand US a month. And it was a great freelance business. Do the math, you get four or five clients and all of a sudden took a reasonable amount of money, even for Hong Kong. It was fun in the beginning, but I think there's always a sense of wanting to do something bigger. And I think, or in my case, create something more real beyond myself. And that's where, when I saw the need for video editing, and then I saw Design Pickles unlimited graphic editing model, I thought there might be something there. Was it about that idea that resonated with you specifically? The first is that it seemed possible. I think your podcast with Russ. Just jumping in here to say that Justin is talking about Design Pickle founder, Russ Perry. And we'll link up to that episode in our show notes. All right, back to Justin. But as I listened to his podcast with you and a few others, I realized this is a model that I can do. I've personally been to Philippines a lot of times, a lot of, but a lot of this was for visiting factories from my old business, I realized, oh, this is something that I know how to do, how to work with people online, specifically from the Philippines. Then I also had a video editing friend. And so when I saw the model, how it worked, I was like, this isn't software. I'm not a coder. So at this point, at least it's very difficult to do something like that. But I could see the geo arbitrage opportunity. I wanted to build a business, something that was real, something that was an asset, 
I didn't want to go down like a advising, coaching, consulting path, not because those aren't important, they are, especially when done well or done from the right people. I just really didn't want to be some form of a, like, this is how you do sales or this is how you do anything or this is how you do Facebook ads or even like an online course, because while all that's helpful and useful, there's something to be said about, I think, delivering something. And while a video isn't, I guess it is tangible. I think there's something special about that. That's cool. Someone's going to listen to this conversation and do the same that you did. And hopefully they'll be able to do it a little bit more efficiently and get to where you got a little faster. Let's walk through the steps here. You laid it out in chapters and it's a very engaging read. The first chapter is how I validated Video Husky in 90 days. So you have the idea. How did you validate it? The idea was 90 days, 10 customers. If I can't get that, 10 paying customers, then there probably isn't enough demand for something like this and just move on with life. Keep on doing the Facebook ads thing. Day one, zero customers, but one editor. Day 10, talked to my, I guess, personal network, got three of my old clients on board. They were definitely not the right customers, but we just rolled with it. (laughs) Day 86, still those same four customers. Thought this was done, thought I wasn't going anywhere. But at that point, I had already joined the DC and that's where... The magic happened and the difference of day 86 to day 90 was six paying customers. I have a lot to be grateful for on that count. So at the time, the idea was basically like, hey, I need regular video editing. I'm going to pay Video Husky a flat rate fee based on the number of videos I'm creating. And it's just going to come back to me. The follow design biggest unlimited model. So it was, I think at the time it was 500 bucks. So you pay $500, you can upload as many jobs as you want and then so if you upload 10 jobs, we'll just work on one project at a time. So when project A is done, we'll do project B. When that's done, we'll do project C. And so while it's a limited model, it still is constrained by working one thing at a time, which then is a win-win. Your next chapter is then 10 to 5 customers. How losing half of my customers showed me which ones were ideal. What did you learn during this period? That was a brutal, brutal three months. What was your price point? 500 bucks a month. Okay. Yeah. It's a meaningful product at that point. It sucked because we had already brought on a new editor by that point. I guess the bigger problem was realizing that people saw the value but couldn't extract the value out of it. At that point, I had started working with a couple of entrepreneur coaches, Alex McClafferty, who was one of the co-founders of WP Curve, and then also Russ Perry, who founded Design Pickle. So that was really cool, given Videoski was inspired by it. You mentioned something like, They couldn't extract the value. That's a really interesting way to put it. Can you describe to us what you mean? Yeah. So imagine you have a tool, right? You get all excited by it. Let's say it's a remote lock on a door. You're able to let the friend in if you're not there. While that's helpful, if you don't know how to use it, then it's a wasted product. And I think that was a lot of what was happening with Videoski because we were working with people who mostly had edited their own videos. And so while most of them were excited about being able to save the dozens of hours every week of not having to edit because there was a lack of, as it turns out, outsourcing in and of itself is a skill. You have to be able to communicate it well. You have to be able to paint the vision. You have to be able to work with the right individual on the other end, especially in something like video editing, where it's more of a collaborative process than something like graphic design, where it's the person on the other end going from start to finish. You have to be really, really good in how you communicate. And what we found was working with people who had previously outsourced editing was much, much easier than working with people who were outsourcing for the first time. Because when people outsourced for the first time, there were so many things we had to sell them on. 
And yeah, when we realized that of all the five customers that were left and who were sticking around, they were the kinds of creators who had already outsourced. We realized, oh, so that's who we need to sell to, not people who edit their own videos. By the way, classic TMBA thought nugget, which is efficiency gap versus knowledge gap, basically describing it. There's three episodes on that concept, essentially creating like slotting yourself into customers that already value and have experience with your process. And you're basically like a supercharger rather than educating clients on why they should be doing something a different way than they're currently doing it. Yeah. And I think that's quite important because before this, when I was selling Facebook ads, that was very much a knowledge gap on the customer side. So I would go to an SAT program in Hong Kong and their way of advertising was sticking their logo on mini buses. So I don't know how you track the ROI on that, but to <laughs> sell them, oh, hey, this is what Facebook ads can do. These are the results I've gotten for previous clients. Are you interested? I'm the expert in that situation. And so I think that was a big hurdle for me to overcome, especially working with Alex was very helpful because when you're only looking at things in a certain way, and this is, was a recurring theme in my own journey, um, you can't see how you're valuable in others. And so if you're a hammer, then everything's a nail. And in my case, I thought I kept on having to sell the knowledge gap. But as it turns out, there's a lot of people much smarter than me who have already figured this stuff out and they just need somebody to overcome that efficiency gap instead of solving an editing problem to solve a, what it turns out is a staffing problem. And once I think for me, grasping the difference between the two made me understand a lot more in terms of how to not only shape the product, because those are two different things, but also how to come up with the right value proposition and then put the right messaging in place for potential leads and prospects to not only see it, but to be excited that somebody came up with a solution for it. You wrote Alex and Russ were invaluable because they helped you see your situation in a different light, they provided feedback when your thinking was flawed, that they kept you accountable in talking to your customers rather than making assumptions. I think these are really fascinating because they're sort of issues I'm facing right now, Justin. So I'm making a lot of assumptions about this new stuff we're doing and I'm just wrong all the time. And I'm curious as to how Alex and Russ would help you see that. So I think a good coach, and this is different to an advisor or consultant because those are more business oriented, but at least coach is more about the individual, does three things. One, they provide emotional support because the ups and downs on a daily or even hourly basis are too real. But two, they also provide accountability and three, most importantly, perspective. At least for me, you just always have to make assumptions, like no matter what, there's no way out of it. But the key thing is being able to accept when your assumptions are wrong and ideally quickly and moving on from them versus we would hold on to certain key assumptions for the longest time, even though they weren't true. And so what I found was really helpful was doing a lot, getting in front of a lot of customers a lot more. It's easy to forget to do that, especially when you're in the day-to-day -day process where I think on one hand, spending a lot of time in front of customers is important. Then the other half of that is also spending a lot of time, ironically, alone to process that. Because if you go straight from customer call to uh, operations, how do we get three more, and I guess in your case, jobs filled, or in our case, three more videos edited, there isn't enough processing time to take what you have and then reconnect the dots in a new way to unlock that value. So the next chapter... It sounds like you've unlocked some value here from five to 200 plus customers. How Video Husky 10x in a year while I was nomading. I want to know, how did you 10x? <laughs> so one of the 
helpful articles going into Video Husky. Was this one by Brian Balfour? I think it was how to grow a hundred million dollar company. And we're definitely not that. I doubt Video Husky will ever be that. But the frameworks still apply. And he talks about how product market fit isn't enough. And there are four different fits, second of which was market channel fit. And he talked about how it is important to not only consider that you have something that's valuable for your market, but also a sustainable way to reach them profitably. Alex had recommended a book, Traction. It's an okay book. Is this the marketing traction, the one where they talk about all the different tractions? Yeah, so not the Gina Wickham one. The premise of the book is there are 19 different ways you can reach out to customers. Pick two or three based on, I think, some kind of bullseye method and then test those. And so we had, I think, mid-August, we started testing, no, beginning of August, we started testing cold email. And that actually worked reasonably well. We got 10 customers. So imagine you go from five to 10, five to 15, I think. That's, that was great. It was really exciting. But also ran into the same issues where we were scraping cold emails from YouTubers' accounts. And while the open rates were good, the reply rates, click rates, and even sign-up rates were good, we were still talking to customers who ultimately, the majority of them edited videos themselves. And so it goes back to the same problem where we're not reaching the right market. What worked quite well for us, and I don't know why it took so long for me to figure this out, was paid advertising, specifically Facebook. Where it was helpful using Facebook ads is that you have a lot more flexibility to reach out to a much wider audience than cold email, if at a, I guess, a quicker rate. And because we also had video editors, it became easy to design the right ad, the right creative. And instead of focusing on the challenges of outsourcing editing, which then is like the tediousness and the hours spent, it's the challenges of finding the right solution. So it's either you have to go full-time, it's very expensive. You have to find a freelancer, takes a lot of time to test, to source, identify source test. I imagine you of all people understand the importance of this. And so we said we provide a third way, which is this flat rate, unlimited model. Don't deal with the HR issues of sick leave, ghosting. It's like somebody's sick. We'll have somebody else ready for you. And because we were able to control that message so much better on Facebook ads, that's what ultimately worked better for us at the time. You mentioned you really need to know your customer acquisition cost and your lifetime value of a client. Are there some rules of thumb in terms of what the percentages should be there for in your thinking? It really depends on your business model. But I think for an online agency, productized service type company like ours, like you really don't want to be spending any more than 10 tops 15% of lifetime value into your own net profit margins. Knowing exactly how all those play out and knowing what your net profit per customer is very, very important and something that I didn't measure particularly well. And then we ran into issues in that over maybe 10 to 12 months later, while revenue was still going up because people were signing up for three-month deals, six-month deals or whatever. And we kept on posting, like it's like increasing our ad budgets accordingly. We were still only getting the same number of customers when likely at some point it was already unprofitable to acquire the next customer because it doesn't scale linearly, it scales. Then every next customer you get costs more. And at some point it just becomes unprofitable. So you have to stop. But we didn't for a while, which is not great. For some context, August 10th, 2018, we had six customers and three editors. By September 30th, 2019, we had reached that hollowed $83,000 a month MRR. Everybody knows what we're talking about. Worked with hundreds of customers and dozens of editors. How do you think through the operational side of supporting the customers? There's always this kind of herky-jerk of the train, like you're selling, selling, selling. It's like, oh my gosh, now we got to turn around and get more editors to deliver, deliver, deliver. 
What are the ways in which Video Husky started to think about supporting all the sales? Yeah, there was no thinking. That caused all kinds of problems later on. But at the time, I still thought like a marketer. And it very much was, all right, our method of growth was to get more customers on board, more customers first, delivery, quality, all the other stuff later on, which any experienced real business owner would tell you is a terrible, terrible way of doing things. I have a lot of regret over how that phase of the business could have been handled. Because at the time, I think I personally managed all the editors up until we had seven or eight. And then I took our most experienced editor. I made him a, actually call them pod heads. And we ended up building out a pod model. So I think every six to nine editors formed one pod. And so that kind of scaled out over time. Then once we got to five or six or something pods, we ended up promoting two senior pod heads who had the combined age of, I think, 45. So I think it was a 22-year-old and 23-year-old. And I think at the time I was 25. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I'm 100% a believer in giving young people opportunity, myself included. You got to grasp it. You got to be able to deliver. But there's something also to be said about working with people who have experience. And so many different people had recommended to me to get an operations manager on board. And I don't know why I was so hell-bent on not paying that cost. And maybe that was a problem. I thought of it as a cost as opposed to an investment in the future. And so over that period of time, organizational debt builds up. We have different kinds of customers which require different kinds of editors, which means our hiring pool got broadened, which means there's a bigger level of variability in our quality of editors because even if they're all great editors, they might be great at different things. And then being able to match those up becomes harder and harder because you want your best, let's say, talking head video editor to be matched with a talking head video creator, not somebody who's doing real estate videos, for example. But it also meant there was less, like as you have more and more pods, less uniformity, less best practices over how to deliver work. And so we were finding out that one pod had implemented one kind of process on how to complete jobs, another pod had implemented another way of doing it. And, and this entire time, all I'm focusing on is let's get more customers, which is not really what I should have been doing. I should have been either figuring out those problems to make us be able to scale better, but I was focused on the short-term gain as opposed to what mattered in the long run. Whether you're a founder, a recruiting manager, or just the person who does everything around the office that's also hiring the next person, we've got stress-free ways to help you find your next great remote employee. Check it out, click through on your phone. I made a chart that shows all of our products for SaaS and e-commerce companies seeking to save time and build elite teams. Try our flat rate recruiting product. We have a 90% success rate. For teams who need to hire quickly, try our pre-vetted candidates. Right now on our website, we've got over 200 potential team members that our experienced recruiting team has already spoken with and are looking to go work at companies like yours. And for companies seeking to maximize candidate flow and direct it by skill, location, level of experience, all while filtering out spam candidates, you got to post a job on our incredible platform. Go ahead and post a job over at Dynamite Jobs and click promote. That starts at just a few hundred dollars. All of our clients receive full email and phone support so your campaigns won't ever stall out. Check out our site or schedule a call today. Dynamite Jobs, the hiring platform for remote first companies. Your next chapter heading, 30 to 50 plus staff, how a Zoom full of angry staff taught me my biggest leadership lesson. 
It's interesting in the previous comment and now in the story we're about to get into, it seems as you were achieving outsized success, you maybe took the advice of others less seriously than you did in the early days, or maybe they're just two isolated situations. In the early days, there were less conversations. So ironically, less conversations led to feedback being taken on more seriously versus as we're scaling up, I'm talking to new customers, new staff members. And so I think this is where having that alone time, at least for me, goes a long way because that allows for the processing. And that related a lot in this case with that Zoom full of our staff, because originally we had set out the holiday policy the way that I like to do holidays, which is I personally quite dislike public holidays. They're busy. It's hard to go anywhere. You have to book restaurants, even locally. If you want to fly, everything is two times more expensive. So I came up in the very beginning of Videoski's like iterations with a holiday policy where it's just like, here's a set number of days that you can take off. It's more than the average worker. Just take them off whenever you want to. And that worked when you have six people on your team and you just coordinate around it when you get to 40 plus and it turns out everybody is saving up their leave for Christmas, something that's important in the Philippines, you realize, oh, wait a second, this is actually not going to work. And then you have to start denying leaves. And that caused all kinds of problems. The anger that broke out after was vitriolic. Nobody talked to me personally about it. Why do you think they didn't feel comfortable reaching out to you? I think there's something to be said about like the advantages of remote work. You get to be in your own place, get to be in your own time. But it also becomes really easy to not sense the mood of the room. And at that point, we had already had, I think, like three layers of management in place. So even at that point, I might speak to a new editor for when they first come on board, but I have no regular ongoing relationship in terms of a regular call with every single editor. And so I couldn't get enough of a sense of what that might feel like. While I had good relationships, I think, with our first couple of hires, Ken, Paul, I didn't have the same relationship with our newer editors. I think there was less comfort or less, I don't know what the right word is, security in being able to reach out like beyond your existing two managers and go, hey, there's a problem. I didn't get to see any of that until I guess it was much later on. There are a few staff only chat rooms, which that makes sense. A couple of the early hires, middle management, who I guess who I had a better relationship with, who trusted me, said, Justin, you really need to see this. And it was talking about how by, like, I had set a promise, which is you can take leaves over the days that you choose. And I was now breaking that promise, which is 100% true, by denying leaves, because you can only have so many editors take leave at the same time, because you need to have an editor be able to cover somebody else. That's not cool. That broke the social contract of Videohusky. And I think that was something that I realized was very big for Videohusky, because a lot of the editors that we worked with, the reason why they preferred working with Videohusky was we were very strict on a no weekends, nobody works at any point, and we're very big on our times. So here are the hours in which everybody's expected to work. You will very unlikely go over that. If you do, there is an overtime rate. That's very, very important to us. One of the key benefits that I guess I didn't realize, of course, looking back, it's obvious, for our staff to work at Videoski was that work-life balance. And part of that is, of course, holidays. And so by not understanding what's important to our staff, that caused me all kinds of issues because I just overlaid my perspective and how I want to do things to everybody versus understanding how things could work out better. It sounds like your new holiday policies worked out great. Yeah. So the way that played out was after, I think, reading a few of the 
chat messages in those groups. We sat down, we had a nice big company-wide Zoom call. Did you wear a Grinch outfit and like take it off ceremoniously? (laughs) (laughs) Christmas is back. I wish, but I imagine that nobody would have found the joke funny at that point. (laughs) But yeah, we just sat down and I think the first thing was listening. And so I think hearing, after hearing 20 people talk about the importance of the leave policy of Christmas, especially, it does hit home. It made me realize, wow, I really was the asshole that not consider the importance of something like Christmas. So after listening to everybody and then seeing what mattered, we instituted what we now call the December break. So we have five days, Monday to Friday, we pick the week depending on the year. And then when you tack on the weekend before and after, it ends up being a nice nine day stretch where there is no work. We shut the entire company down. And I was scared shitless over messaging this out to customers. It was like, yeah, just heads up. We're not working this week. We're still expecting you to pay. So yeah, just yeah, let's see how that goes. And as it turns out, it went great. Most customers were glad that editors were getting a break. I think we had a handful who were a little bit unhappy, but not even unhappy. They just wanted to know, okay, so what does this mean for me? We found a way to manage that situation. It's now part of our routine. And even on a personal level, it's like, oh, as it turns out, taking a nine day break does wonders for you as an individual. And I think this was the beginning of many lessons. Of, oh, wait a second. I am not always right. In fact, I am wrong many, many, many times. From no wager profit to a market-based salary and 20% margins, how COVID forced me to evolve from marketer to business owner. And this was early January to mid-year 2020. Talk to me about this. You weren't making any money before COVID. Yeah, pretty much. So not no money, but at the time I was living in Cambodia. So think like Chiang Mai level prices. There are certain advantages to working and living abroad. If you're going somewhere where it's cheaper, where your run rate is longer. But as part of that, then you think, oh, you can just sustain this forever. And at the time I pulled the $500 a week salary from Video Husky. I also still had one other company that was still paying me a couple thousand dollars, two and a half grand. That was more than enough at the time. And so I didn't consider my own needs or what somebody of my position should be paying myself. I just thought, let's just keep on growing this thing. At that point, Video Husky's growth had started to slow down. And so if you're neither growing nor profitable, you have to pick one. And so the profitability line was the easier one to pick. And so I decided to start working on that issue. And that's when we started working, I think, with Clever Profits. It's they're a virtual like outsourced CFO slash bookkeeper slash accountant company. And they had this great methodology. They laid it all out over this is how much of revenue per month you should be spending on advertising. This is how much revenue per month you should be spending on labor, how much on your overheads, and then this is how much net profit that you should be able to spit out every month. And so seeing it like that was like, oh shit, we don't do that at all. And I was like, man, I really wish you figured this out earlier because trying to figure this out at a smaller scale is way easier than trying to figure it out when you're already larger. You said that you lost 30% of your customers from COVID and you doubled your revenue. This is the second half of 2020. How does that work? Yeah. So of course, at the time that I want to focus on profitability is when COVID hits. So COVID hits, uh, you lose about 30% of our customers overnight. So you can imagine if you go from borderline profitability to losing all those customers, you're now in the red. And so 
not only are we in the red because I had been so maniacal about growing the business, making long-term investments that I think a business of our size shouldn't really be making if we're more bootstrapped, profitable and whatnot, then that put us in a dangerous situation because we had 15 days of cash in the bank. So not great. But at the same time, also good in that it was a wake-up call. We sat down as a company and we said, all right, how are we going to make this work? Speaking to coaches, like on my own side, it was like, okay, we are definitely way overstaffed. So that involved letting go, I think, 16 people. Uh, and man, I feel bad for this one, for Mark, our operations supervisor at the time. He, like, I promoted him. I was like, listen, Mark, I need help with this. I finally promoted somebody dedicated to running operations. I'm promoting you. Congratulations. Your first job is to face a let go of eight people that you don't know. I'll take the other eight. And that's part of running a business. And so that was brutal. The entire company took a 20% pay cut. I stopped paying myself during that time. Then by doing all of that, you realize, oh, wait a second. There are things that you can cut. There are things that you paid for months that you realize you don't actually need to use in terms of softwares or services or whatnot. And while it's brutal for everybody involved, um, it was important for the long-term survivability of the company. And within, I think, a couple of months, there were obviously a lot of extenuating circumstances. What was the PPP program that allowed a ton of people to get extra money and so continue running their businesses? I think that also brought a good number of our previous customers back. I assume, I can't be sure. By that point, I think we had, we'd bled out for two, three months. And then finally, by June, we were eking out borderline profit. And by July, I was able to start accounting for a proper salary for myself, which is important. If you are not paying yourself a proper salary and you're quote unquote profitable, you're not profitable. You are merely uh, just taken from one hand and given to another. You mentioned that reading the pumpkin plan by Mike Michalowicz, I think. Like the profit first guy. <laughs> yeah. So basically the premise is the 80-20 principle. So if you understand the 80-20 principle, what does the book Pumpkin Plan introduce that is unique? The idea is that 20% of your customers bring in 80% of your profit and revenue. And likely, ideally, some other 20% of your customers causes you 80% of your problems, whether cash flow, operationally, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you want to grow, you want to remove your bad customers to get rid of your quote unquote small pumpkins so that all the resources can be put towards your best pumpkin and your best pumpkin being your best customers. This is like trimming a rose bush and the nicer roses get more full. There we go. And by going deeper with your best customers, you can then further tailor your product messaging, value proposition and whatnot towards them and then be able to attract more of them actually really worked for you that's what's crazy is like doubled our ltv and decreased our cac yeah which took us to record revenues yeah to be fair near doubled i wish it doubled but it definitely increased it significantly and the realization i think is for any kind of monthly recurring plans i know there's a big big play on recurring nowadays or maybe a lot more so in the last couple of years but really all mr is just lifetime value paid out in increments and so what really matters more is what is your lifetime value? Because while let's say the at that point five hundred dollars that two customers pay is the same in that month, it also depends on how long each customer is staying. And while it sounds impressive, by getting rid of your bottom twenty percent of customers, and not overnight, over a period of time, you literally just remove the bottom half of all of your least paying, like lowest LTV customers. So of course your LTV goes up. It goes beyond that because it also means there's so much less operational strain for your staff. An example, 
when we did this exercise, the the worst fit clients that we got were agencies, a company who has their own clients and they essentially white label Videoski to do work for their clients, which there is definitely a business model somewhere out there that somebody can do, somebody should do. There's a need, da, 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 da. But in our case, it didn't work well because of how our entire product was built. There was no way for their customers to log on to our portal and be able to leave comments. And even if they did, what if their customers had a different point of view from the agency? Whose instructions did we follow? I don't know. That becomes a real challenge. And so we realized that extra back and forth caused all kinds of problems versus when we're working with a creator or a small business owner who they have an end-to-end vision of what they want. We want to communicate with one person everything just rolled smoother. There were less drafts. And I think one thing that was important reading that book was understanding like, what is the value you get to a customer? And so in our case, like the real value is if you can just edit the video right first time, that's it. Any additional draft is extra work for the customer, for the editor. That's not good. The less drafts, the better. And so if we're able to consistently deliver first drafts, then everybody's happy. But to do that, you need to have, of course, a long-term relationship. So you have all the little details and those details matter. Um, and only by matching the right editor's skill set to the right customer, can you actually have that? And so the realization of nobody, like nothing is a commodity, nobody is a commodity, because I think especially in a medium as complex as video editing, it's not really a skill, it's a subset of various skills. And so in our case, by understanding which kind of customers we work best with, then understanding what kind of skills they need, then understanding as a result, what kind of editors we need to hire, were we able to also not only stop working with poor fit customers, but work better with our best fit customers, deliver better results, and as a result, have them hopefully stay on longer. Hating my job, how my entrepreneurial dream turned first world problems, nightmare, helped me to find a better path. This is January 21 to August 21. I like this part because you bring in Taylor Pearson, who's one of my favorite all-time people, frequent guest of this podcast. And basically your summary here is that being a true business owner with management responsibilities was something I didn't enjoy and decided that hiring a GM would be best for myself and Video Husky. How did you get to this moment? I think a big arc of 2020 was going from a marketer mindset to a business owner mindset. So what do I mean by that? In the beginning of 2020, January before COVID, it was still, yeah, let's just dump money into ad spend. Ad spend equals growth, growth, better, you know, da da da, da. But no business is that simple as much as Russell Brunson will have you believe. There are actually many things, especially in a service that goes into building out a proper company. And for me, that first step, was, I guess, a couple months before with understanding how human resources works because I had no HR experience. Then understanding finances. All right. So under our current situation at the time where we were not profitable, how do you turn that into profitability? And then from going one more step into, all right, if we're going to serve this one particular kind of customers who, and we're not going to serve this other kind of customer, who's going to talk to those customers and say, Sorry, guys, we just can't work with you anymore. Of course, that's me. So having more conversations of, sorry, guys, we can't work with you anymore. It's still not a great feeling because for a lot of these customers, they couldn't find a deal as good as ours. And the only reason the deal is good is because the underlying economics of the business model were unsustainable. So of course, they wanted to keep on working together. It's my responsibility to stop that because if not, then the business is less profitable, less staff, et cetera. So that's not good. But even with working with our new customers, that means redesigning everything. It's just only about narrowing the scope of your offer. Like the more you can narrow it down, the better you can deliver your work. At least on my part, it's like 
the combination of the HR finances, burden of managing 60 plus staff, the increasing amount of organizational debt, the lack of vision that you felt compelled by. Yeah. Lead you to these conclusions, which I thought was really interesting. A lack of a founder market fit and a lack of a founder product fit. Yeah. And so this is where I think Taylor came in. The originally started working with him to improve our sales processes, but really ended up talking a lot more about me personally. And the reality was I no longer had that founder market fit where in the beginning we were working mostly with small business owners or agencies who so happen to create videos. I'm a small business owner and I've owned an agency, whether it's Video Husky or others, like I can relate to you. I personally cannot relate to a video creator. And there are some video creators that we work with that are super talented. Like they have asked for joint programs to work together more closely. And I know there is potential there, but I don't see how to unlock it because I don't understand that point of view. But more important, I don't relate. It's hard for me to deliver that service. And this has been a recurring theme in all my businesses. Huh. Yeah, I had a, my Shopify store was selling hiking shirts, shirts that just had stupid like slogans over like over hiking stuff like, actually, I'd rather hike and chill instead of Netflix and chill. And I would talk to our customers and they'd be like, oh yeah, we hiked the Andes or whatever this month. And I'd be like, oh shit, I haven't hiked anything in six months. Yeah, I, I broke my ankle. I, I don't hike. I can't, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's something that I think not many people consider. It's like, what, do you have, do you actually resonate? Are you excited to serve your customer? And as we went more and more towards creators, while I could admire and respect the work that a lot of our creators did, I couldn't resonate with them. And so it was hard to do more and more calls. And so that was one issue with the founder market fit. But the other issue that we faced was, at least on my side, was founder product fit, which is, I realized I really, really don't like managing. Me too. We can all do it, but it doesn't mean that it's my, like what I'm naturally inclined to do. You mentioned, so the way you overcame this challenge is you went on to hire a GM. It sounds like you found somebody who can run it better than you. Yeah, that is definitely true. <laughs> for context, for everybody's listening, we started working where I started working with, with Ian at Dynamic Jobs. And we went through, I think there were a good number of clients, or not clients, sorry, prospects. But ended up, I think it took four months hiring our current GM, Fed, who has done a phenomenal job. So I know Fed listened, so just know that, man. But yeah, that's how it went down. What was the book, Who? How did that help you? So the book that Taylor recommended that I read was his book, I think, Who, W-H-O, kind of guide for hiring. But the two parts that really resonated was, one, you need to be able to come up with a scorecard for every single staff member, including your eventual GM. Because if your staff don't know what they are measured against, and this ties in very well, I think, with traction, this time by Wickham, not by the other guy. If every staff member knows what their KPIs are, then it all kind of lines up through the entire company. Now, of course, there are caveats to all of this, so take everything with a pinch of salt, but it enables everybody to have a common language within the company. And I think for something like Video Husky, where you have this many people, it is important to have a common language by which to speak of things. And so understand that, all right, in your role, you're expected to deliver this. Like these are your three KPIs that you're responsible for. Another role, you're responsible for delivering these KPIs. And then in the GM role, you're responsible for these KPIs, which leads to this result. I think that's something that's actually quite, quite important because what I really wanted to make sure I did, although that came with its own challenges, was to hand something over to the next GM where it was already like it was running so that he wouldn't need to jump in. Now, that's not how it played out, but that was the idea behind it. Your next title, The Surprising Consequences of Accidental Involvement. Fed joined, 
in September of 21. And by October, we had transitioned to a weekly meeting. And by January 2022, a biweekly one. However, by March 2022, it became apparent that there were challenges with the transition. Yeah. So this is one of the trickier things I think I had to learn. So I think a lot of transitions from, let's say, founders to GM or however that goes, that everybody assumes that you need to spend more time with the GM to make that happen. But ironically, what I found for us, if you ask again, for me in particular, was that the more distance, actually, the better. And I think part of this is understanding, again, like what you want. This goes back to, on one hand, what do you want quantitatively, let's say out of your business, but what do you also want qualitatively? Do you still want to have some involvement or is it actually better to have no involvement? And what I was realizing by having these weekly or bi-weekly meetings with Fed was a typical meeting would be Fed brings up, let's say, how we're doing for the week or the two weeks, certain issues. And I just can't resist have putting a little bit of input. And up till now, I still catch myself doing it. And that little bit of input, it seems so small, but it makes a difference because taking it from the other point of view, if, if I tell Fed, oh, this is my point of view on something from Fed's point of view, if I told him he's responsible for these certain results, but this is how you have to do it, well, that sucks. And I think one thing that really helped was speaking with my dad at a much, much bigger scale. Of course, he works with a board, right? And so him and the board only meet once every three months or whatever. And he tells the board, you need to stay out of my business because this is how I do things. And I realized that I wasn't giving Fed the same respect because by telling him, oh, this is how we did things in the past. This is how you should do things. Well, that's stupid because if it had worked, it would have worked already. It would have worked over the previous three years, but like obviously certain things didn't. And so my need to feel, I guess, like subconsciously not letting go or irrelevant or whatever, it just causes issues down the line because then I tell Fed, you like something has, it should be done this way. It makes no sense to Fed, not because it like, because it just makes no sense, period. I'm too far removed from the business. I have no context. Then Fed has to defend a decision or a comment that I made to our team goes, this makes no sense. And so one comment can just make its way through. And then of course, you're also playing the telephone game, especially when you're working remote. So by the end of it, it's just like, what? How did this happen? And so I realized, like after, after speaking with our team members, after speaking with Fed, I realized actually my own involvement, like the less of it, the better. Because Fed is somebody who is very experienced. He knows what he's doing. Our team are full of very talented, capable people. They know what they're doing. They do not need me to handhold them. And the more that I try to handhold or whatnot and not let go, the worse the end results are. And I guess like on one hand, admitting that is also kind of hard to be like, oh, actually, like it's actually better if you're not involved. Nobody really wants to hear that. But the reality is that's the case. It's like if I accept that I am not the general manager, I need to abdicate that position and give, some, in this case, Fed, but not only fed our entire team the opportunity and the possibility to grow into the leadership roles that they have the potential to do. If I'm always taking on that responsibility, they have no opportunity and everybody gets resentful. And so we, I think in end of beginning of this quarter, we were quarter two. So yeah, beginning of quarter two, we transitioned it so that Fed and I now meet once every quarter. And ah, man, and even in those quarterly meetings, I still can't keep my mouth shut. Well, congratulations, because you've done exactly what you set out to do. You built the definition of an asset. Brilliant. It's an absolutely incredible achievement in just four years. 
Yeah. If you told me four years ago this is how it play out, I would have been gobsmacked. But I think it's also <laughs> really important to like understand the factors beyond yourself. It's like all of these things happen, like not all, but a large portion of these things happen right place, right time. And I think I was talking to, this was a couple of years ago, Jake Jorgovin over his podcast service and video husky. And it's like the conclusion that we came to was like, oh, like a lot of this happened right place, right time. Because if you, if this had happened earlier, the infrastructure wouldn't have been there to send 40 gigabytes worth of files over the internet. If the idea came later, well, somebody else would have done it first. Facebook ads are way more expensive now than they were four years ago. And so would the economics work? I don't know. But suffice it to say, also grateful for everybody who was a part of, I think, Video Husky's journey and my own journey, with which the DC played an immense part. It's very cool. And it looks like you're getting some really nice comments and like some pretty in-depth conversation based on your post thus far. Yeah, it's nice to be able to also share the journey, to have it resonate with other people and to be able to share a point of view now that I guess I didn't have a few years ago. But hopefully those are also helpful because at least on my side, being able to create something like this has changed my life. How? My family runs a family business. The majority of my cousins work for my family and it's a great setup. But uh, one of the things I think I struggled with growing up with was I was always the third generation. And so we all know how the saying goes. The third generation f***ed it up. Essentially, yeah. And so that was drilled <laughs> into us early on. But it's hard to measure up to my grandpa, my dad, my parents, my uncles and aunts who have incredible achievements. And as, as much as I am incredibly grateful for all the support I've been given over the years, it's also hard to be able to create your own light if you're always in somebody's shadow. And so my dad is incredibly supportive, especially of my entrepreneur journey. He's had to deal with all kinds of family stuff as a result of my own choices over how do you explain to somebody that you're going to Thailand, Cambodia to live? <laughs> but I think being able to actually have number one, like quantitatively a financial asset to do it in a way where I can live the life that I want to live, which is more nomadic at this point, is something that is quite great. It just also provides that opportunity to, I think, see the things that you wouldn't otherwise see. And I think one of the big things was going to my first DCX. And I remember the imposter syndrome was just unreal. It was like listening to people talk about their businesses and whatnot. But it's like the, all of a sudden, and this goes back to, I think a theme that's quite important is to be able to see things from a different perspective. It's like you realize, oh, there are people out there doing this, that it is possible. And if it is possible, well, then why not you? Justin, this was absolutely awesome. Thanks for coming on the podcast. 100%. Thanks for having me, Dan. This is a dream. So what can I say? Big thanks to Justin Tan, the founder of Video Husky and the creator of this amazing post for coming on the show. You can reach out to him at his website. It's justintan.me. We'll link up to that in the show notes as well. Give him a shout. Tell him the thanks for being on the TMBA podcast. That's it. We'll be back next Thursday morning as usual, 8 a.m. Eastern time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.